Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. My sermon title this morning is Jesus All or Nothing. Jesus All or Nothing. So if you've been with us for a few weeks, you would know that um, Paul, the apostle, writes a letter to his young son in the faith whose name is Timothy. Paul writes two letters in the New Testament to Timothy. The first letter, he addresses Timothy, but also those in the church. Paul's second letter to Timothy was more of a personal uh, letter that was written to Timothy about how he should conduct himself as a leader in the Lord's church. But 1 Timothy is for not only Timothy, but it's also for those who are in the church. One, how Timothy should conduct himself as a leader. And secondly, how the church should govern themselves in response to Timothy's leadership. And so just like any leader, a leader on a job, a leader in the home, or just leading yourself, there will always be things that will stand in opposition to what you are trying to get accomplished. Let me say this to you, if you desire to be a leader, you will face opposition. There will be things and there will be people at some point in your leadership that will come against what you're trying to get accomplished. It is no different in the house of the Lord. And so Timothy, um, Paul is giving him this commission to lead this church at Ephesus, but at the same time, he's supposed to teach them sound doctrine. He is supposed to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul has left with Timothy and established in this church in a place called Ephesus. The problem with this, though, is like the problem for any leader, is that there are those who are in close proximity, those that are in the church that are standing in staunch opposition to Timothy's leadership. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to tell him how he is supposed to engage with those who are what he deems as false teachers in the church and how Timothy is supposed to respond to them and how Timothy is supposed to get God's vision of preaching the gospel accomplished in that church. And so this, this is the thing about the false teachers. They've been teaching something in the church that stands in contrast to the gospel that Paul told, told Timothy to preach. And so if you were here the first couple of weeks, you'll understand that they taught these fables and these genealogies and these myths and these speculation. They were focusing on things that were outside of the scope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they weren't just um, doing that. They were undermining the teaching that Paul left with them, and they were attempting to undermine, to undermine Timothy's authority, and they were also ultimately undermining the gospel message itself. And so the main problem isn't just the issue of them disseminating erroneous information. The major issue was really a failure of the heart. The reason why they were teaching false doctrine because they had heart issues. And so their impure motives were driving, were the driving force behind their actions. And so their doctrine did not agree with sound teaching. Let me say that again. Their doctrine did not agree with sound teaching. Paul taught one thing, Timothy taught one thing, the false teachers were teaching something entirely different. And so they did not uh, agree with the teaching of the gospel. And so simply put, they didn't agree, so they didn't comply. Let me say that again. They didn't agree, so they did not comply. And so for us, the real test and question for any burgeoning leader or one who desires to lead in any capacity is not are you gifted, but can you submit to authority even when you don't agree with it? 
Can you submit to authority when you don't agree with it? Can you submit to the authority of your boss when you don't agree? Can you submit to the authority of your professor when you don't agree? Can you submit to the authority of your husband when you don't agree? Can you submit to the authority of your pastor when you don't agree? And most importantly, can you submit to God and his word when your flesh and your mind disagrees with what God says? Can you submit? I, I, I don't want to know uh, um, um, if, you can, if you can do something or get something accomplished. I don't know if you can just do things on your own, but I want to know, can you submit to leadership? And if the answer is no, then maybe you're not ready for the stuff that you've been praying for. You see, the gospel message is not about feelings. It's about faith. And we live in a generation where if I don't feel like it, then I don't do it. But that's not how the gospel is. The gospel says, even when I don't agree, I still comply. Because not everything that Jesus says is going to feel good to your flesh. And so a clear indication of a great leader is that they are a great follower. I'm called to leadership, but can you follow in this season? Can you trust somebody else's vision and work on that vision like it's your own? If you're not ready for that, then you're not a leader. Real leadership is not how, uh, what you can get accomplished or how gifted you are. It's can you follow? And so these leaders were just, the, the, the problem with these false teachers were they were guys that Paul had ordained and put in leadership in the church at Ephesus. If you read the letter of the book of Acts, Paul mentions he's having a conversation with these guys and he tells them, here's what I want you to do, but I know as soon as I leave and turn my back and head in the other direction, y'all are going to undermine my authority. You know how it is when your teacher's there and then you get a substitute teacher for the week. You do, you show up to class late, you don't do your homework, you talk in class, you're disrespectful, you do all the things that you would normally do when the leader is there. So these guys are doing the same thing, and in this case, they were devoting themselves to a teaching that did not promote godliness. Why? Because for them, godliness was a means to an end. It says that they didn't agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that promotes godliness. What is sound teaching, pastor? What is sound teaching? The word sound there actually means healthy. It is wholesome. It is good for you. It produces spiritual well-being. The gospel that they're talking about, the sound teaching, is so potent that if you give yourself a consistent diet of it, it can heal the brokenness of your soul. It's so good for you that even when you don't feel like eating it or if eating it is not convenient because it doesn't fit into your present agenda, you should still eat it because it'll make you better. That's how good it is. And so it says it was the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a teaching that makes Jesus the center of everything. And so how, how, how do I know, pastor, if I'm sitting on a good pastor or if I'm at a good church or if I should be listening to somebody? If what they're talking about does not lead you to Jesus, if it doesn't lead you to complete and total dependency on Christ and Christ alone, then it's not right teaching. The, the, the end of the Bible, how about this? The Bible is not about you. What? It's not? Pastor, I've been thinking the Bible is about me. No, the Bible is about Jesus Christ. 
It is about lifting him up from the earth. It says, if I be lifted up, I would draw all men. But, but so we look at the scriptures and we just trying to, how can I, how can this benefit me? That's not how you read the Bible. You look at the God of the Bible and how he deals with his people. That's, that's, that's what you do. And so sound teaching is one that focuses and centers on Jesus. It's the teaching that lifts him up. It glories him as our only hope in this life and in death. That's what it does. How do you know that, Pastor? Because Jesus said in John 5, verse 39, the scriptures bear witness about me. Your Bible is about Jesus. And so it says this, it's this teaching. It promotes Godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is actually worship that is directed towards God. It's worship that is directed towards God. And so it promotes a life that believers live with an awareness that their lives are lived out before God. Here's what it is in short. Living life. Here's what godliness is. Living life like you know God is watching. Ooh, that's scary. Mm. That's, that's, some of y'all ought to praise God and some of y'all ought to cry. Godliness is living life like I know God is watching me. That's a whole nother level right there living. And so what, what, it, what, it, what it does is when, when, when the teaching is sound and it promotes godliness, we then engage the world and it produces a visibly Christ-like manner of life in it. So godliness is this. Calamity comes. Adversity comes. Somebody makes me mad. Somebody does something wrong to me or circumstances are not favorable for me. And so I don't respond out of my flesh, but I respond in a Christ-like manner because I know that he's watching. That's godliness. Godliness is I'm living my life like I know God is watching. So my question to you this morning, how are you living? Hmm. Would you be okay if God could watch your life? No, 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 I'm not no, no, I'm not talking about right now in church. I'm talking about your real life. I'm talking about yesterday, last night, Friday night life, that life, not this one. Not, not the church life, your real for real life. Would you be okay if you knew the eyes of the Lord are watching? And if your answer is no, here's a, that's a trick question. Here's why it's a trick question. Because he actually is watching. He actually is watching. And so the, the, the goal of Timothy's teaching is to promote godliness. Godliness is the goal and it's a byproduct of the gospel. If you get sound biblical teaching that centers on Christ, it will produce godliness in your life. It is a teaching that promotes a life that makes me like him because I'm living life like I'm standing before him. Let me say that again. It is a teaching that promotes a life that makes me like him because I'm living life like I'm standing before him. So opposite of that is the false teachers were teaching something entirely different. They were minimizing Christ in their teaching. It was more of a works-based, man-centered theology that sought after some higher experience and some higher spiritual, spiritual standing. You know, when you, you turn on the TV, and you turn on a Christian station, or you listen to a Christian message, you're watching one on YouTube, and, and the preacher keeps talking about going to a new level, going to a new dimension. Going to a new stratosphere, going to a new planet, going to a new gap. Soon y'all gonna leave. I can't go that high. I'm afraid of heights. What am I supposed to do? Y'all always going somewhere deeper and higher, but when you come back down to earth, you can't obey God. 
I just want to bask in his presence. No, I want you to obey in his presence. I don't want to know if you can go deeper. I want to know if you can obey. That's deeper. Some of us need to stop going to new levels and stratospheres and dimensions, and some of us need to put our, our feet right here on earth and deal with the issues right here in front of us. You can worship till you turn blue in the face, but if you don't forgive and love your neighbor as yourself, then you fail the test. All right. And so they were also just, just, just pushing this notion and this idea that if I do certain actions, it'll merit me certain results before God. If I do X, Y, Z, I can get this from God. And so they were saying, if I'm obedient, I can get what my neighbor has. If I'm obedient, I can get somebody just like the one she got. If I do this, I can get a house just like the Joneses. And so their, their, their godliness was for them a means to get something and acquire something. And so the false teachers were pushing this, which is dangerous. But here's the thing. When you believe that type of works-based, man-centered theology that everything is about you and what you can get accomplished for your own benefit and for your own personal agenda, what it really ends up doing is leading to a poor quality of life because you get disappointed and heartbreaking when your goals and dreams don't come true. Stuff that God ain't never told you was in his will for your life. And that's what happens. You know, you know, it promises you something, but in the end, it doesn't do you any benefit. You, you ever been watching TV late at night and you see them commercials? Come on, uh, um, um, those, those uh, pill commercials or, or whatever they're called. And um, you be watching TV late and then the old couple come on TV and they riding a bike through the park. And, or they, they're running through the park with their grandchild. Or they're sitting at the table laughing, having a drink of coffee, and it, and it says something like this. It says something like, something like this, like, if, if you struggle with sleeping at night, if you have a hard time getting rest, consult with your doctor about taking Alexoria. That sounds like one of the pills, right? That sounds like one of them. <laughs> consult with your doctor about taking Alexoria. And then what they say real fast, so, so you don't catch it. It may cause you eternal bleeding, migraines, reoccurring nightmares, blindness, cavities, strokes, back pains, and narcolepsy. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I just want to go to bed. I don't need all the extra stuff like my lungs don't fall out if I take this. I'll go to sleep at night, but I'm going to be dead. I ain't going to wake up. They tell you the benefit. They don't tell you the side effects. That's why you have to be mindful of what you listen to and what you put in your spirit. They don't tell you that it's unhealthy. They don't tell you that. And so here's what it says in verse 8. Why would they do this? He tells them what type of people they are. Verse 4a, the first, the, the A clause of verse 4, it says this. He is conceited. The people like that are conceited and they understand nothing, but they have a healthy, unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. Over words, basically saying they're, they're prideful, they're puffed up. They think they know everything, but in actuality, they don't know anything. Let me tell you something. You can be the smartest person in the world. If you're a Christian, you say you're the smartest, you're the smartest person in the world. <clears throat> Have a high IQ, very high intellect. But if you can't obey God, you're not smart. That's not smart. That's called being, a, the Bible calls that foolishness. You can have a doctoral degree and be a doctoral fool. You got a doctoral, a doctorate in disobedience. And some of us need to hang that up on our wall. School of hard knocks. 
doctorial disobedience. And here's what it says about them. They were arrogant and ignorant. That's a deadly combination to be ignorant and arrogant. You ever met somebody that think they know everything? And so he says they have an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. You see, it says unhealthy because we know that sound teaching is healthy. This is the opposite. Heretical teaching is unhealthy and it typically will make people in a church sick. And so he's trying to warn them. And so these are the type of people that would rather debate and argue than rather have a healthy dialogue about things about the faith. You met these type of people at your job, you got family members like this, you got classmates like this, that they want to engage in religious conversations, not for healthy benefit or to grow, they want to engage you in debate, knowing that no matter if you prove the test, if you prove them right, if Jesus comes down to earth and stands in front of them and rubs them on their head, they still not gonna, gonna agree with you. And so I would advise you not to even engage in dialogue with people who are trying to debate. I honor people who have real serious, sincere questions about their faith. They're really trying to grow in God. I welcome that. I appreciate that. I appreciate it so much because I'd rather you ask a question than not know and walk in ignorance. And so when people ask questions, that's fine. But when it gets to a point where somebody wants to debate, all you need to do is ask them this. If I could prove to you that Jesus is real, would you submit and surrender to him? And then typically nine out of ten times they will tell you know. You don't have to worry about winning that argument with them because at the end of days, the Bible says this, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That debate ends at that moment. And so here's what happens. This bad theology and this bad doctrine produces something. You see, Something bad doesn't just stay that way. There's a fallout that happens. There's an aftermath to the nonsense. And here's five things that happens when bad doctrine and theology is preached. Five bad things that happens. Here's the five side effects that they don't tell you about. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant agreements. It's in verse, the B clause of verse 4. It says this, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant disagreements. Let me run through these real quick for you. What is envy? Envy is a never-ending craving for things or positions possessed by somebody else. Let me say this. I want you to hear the beginning of this sentence. Envy is never-ending, never-ending Craving for things or positions possessed by somebody else. Here's how you know you're envious. If it pains you or if you feel sorrow when you see other people in possessions of stuff that you want. You see them with something and it pains you to see them with what you, what you want. It makes you feel some type of way. You feel something in your heart towards somebody because they got something that you want and you don't have it. And so you have a personal uh, uh, vendetta against somebody and they don't even know it. That's how you know you're envious. It takes it another step further because envy manifests itself in something called jealousy. And so jealousy happens over something good that happens for somebody else. And it resents other people. And, and, and when other people get praised from somebody, they resent it because they get praised from somebody that you want to praise from. I wish they would tell me that I was good. I wish they told me that I did a good job. The danger in that is this. If you're doing stuff for the applause of people, you're going to be forever, forever disappointed. If you ain't doing it out of the kindness of your heart, you might as well not even waste your money, your resources, your time, your investment. 
Because if you're looking for a pat on the back, there's no guarantee that people will always be grateful and thankful. So when you give somebody something, give it to them free and clear and walk away. That's what you should do. And so this whole thing of, of envy turns really into this disease that gnaws at people's hearts. And it's unsettling and it provokes hatred towards other people and it destroys relationships. And so you, you walking up to your sister in church and you speaking to her and she acting funny with you. You, you ever have somebody act funny with you and you know it's different than it typically is? And what's wrong with them? Did I do something? No, you ain't do nothing. It's that envy that's gnawing at their hearts. And so sometimes it ain't even about you. It's about something going on with them. And let me say this. If you struggle with envy or if you have envy in your heart, that is something that does not need to go unchecked. You need to deal with envy, call it on the carpet and deal with it. It is a dangerous thing and it can play itself out in your life and it can hinder and it can destroy other relationships that you have with people in your family and in your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what happens. Envy turns into dissension, which is fights. People start fighting. And then that turns into slander. And people start making up stuff about other people to ruin somebody else's reputation. And people are walking around with stains on their reputation and they have nothing to do with what they've been accused of. But because we live, uh, we live in an age where people just take news and run with it without verifying facts, People's names get damaged. Their reputations get damaged. We, we, don't, we don't give anybody a benefit of the doubt. They are guilty until proven innocent. And so we have to be mindful as believers that we don't take and believe the first rumor we hear about somebody. If you want to know the truth, ask both parties. Ask both parties. You need some. Tell them I need some receipts. I need some receipts, Jack. And so slander then turns into suspicions. Because now, because people have heard something about a person, they're suspicious of them. It just, it's, a, it's a cycle that perpetuates itself. And it plays out because these guys are telling people that if you do this, you can get what they have. And when you don't get it, something else settles in your heart called envy. And all of that perpetuates a cycle that ends in constant disagreement and persistent collisions in the church or in the life or in, in somebody's family. All of this is a natural outgrowth of envy. So here's the thing. Um, the false teachers, um, for them, godliness was no longer the end goal. Godliness was actually a means to an end. What was the end, Pastor? The end was personal benefit. Here's what it says in verse 5. They imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. They imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Godliness for them was a means of acquiring wealth. And so you have to be, be mindful that if you get to the point where godliness for you is a means to get something, then you have a distorted view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel ain't put in place for you to think that you can use it to get something. God ain't no cosmic genie. God is not there for you to come rub your Bible and he gives you what you want. That's not how God, God works. And so they, they were using God to get what they wanted. They were not interested in godliness for its own sake. Instead, they taught that godliness and good morals was a pathway to financial security. And so that's what the, 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 the wealth and health and prosperity teachers don't tell you. And so th this, this has been narrowed down to financial security, but, but we do it all the time. Here's how we do it. I'm fasting 
so I can get this job. I'm fasting so I can get this promotion. Ooh, my life is so hard and so tough, and, and we just broke up, and things are going wrong, and so I'm going to start going back to church. I'm going to go to church. I'm paying my tithes. I'm joining the praise team. I'm going to be an usher. I'm coming to prayer service. I'm going to Bible study. I'm doing all of these things because life has gotten hard. And here's what happens. It never fails when somebody is not authentic in their faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as things clear up and life becomes okay, they walk right back out the door. I've seen it way too many times. Every, oh, it's so hard. Life is so hard. Can you pray for me? And then when you get the thing that is the black cloud removes or you get better or the job happens or you get the money or somebody gives it to you and then you walk right back out of church. That's not authentic faith. That was using godliness as a means of gain. And so that all oh, that, that that's just that, that that's just a lie. If I do what she does, if I serve like she does, I'll have a man like she got. I have a spouse just like she does. Let me tell you something. You don't go home with her so you don't know what kind of spouse she got. You see them at church. She look fine right here. She a mess at home, but you don't know that though. But what's in your heart has convinced you that that's what you want. You don't even want a man, you want her man. That's so sick and twisted that you would want something that you don't even know what comes attached to it. But we do it all the time. They got a promotion, but you don't know the weight and the sleepless nights that come along with that promotion. You want more money, but more money, more problems. You don't know that, though. And so we kind of stop using godliness as a means for gain because here's the point in the crux of the message. In verse 6, it says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. Not just regular old gain, but it's Great gain. Great gain. And so why would he say that? Because there's a limit to material gain. There's a limit to it. Do you know? Do you know that, that if you get what you've been praying for, that, that, that maybe it could danger you or harm you or destroy your life? Do you not know that? It takes wisdom to know that, you know what, maybe God hadn't given me that yet because God knows I'm undisciplined. God knows that if I get this, I might squander it and throw it away. And so I want what she has, but I ain't willing to pay the price. And so I might get it and I might ruin it. And so we have to be satisfied with God. Godliness um, is not the means to financial gain. Godliness is the gain. Let me say that again. Godliness is not the means to financial gain. Godliness is the gain. There will always be a hole in your soul that can only be filled by Jesus. You think if you get that, it's going to make you feel better. No, you don't understand. Once you get that, there's going to be other problems that come along with that. I don't want nothing that God don't want me to have. And so contentment, godliness with contentment. What, what, what's, what's, what's contentment, Pastor? The Greek philosophers believed that contentment or content, a person who was content was a, a person who... Um, had enough resources and they did not need anyone else or depend on anyone else. They had everything that they needed within themselves. And so a content, a, a content person was a self-sufficient person. It was a self 
self-sufficient person. And so I was like, okay, cool, that's a great idea. But, 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 but we, we have to take that a step further as, as Christians. Contentment for us is not self-sufficiency. For a Christian, it's not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. We're not sufficient in ourselves, we're sufficient in Christ. We're not sufficient in what we can get for ourselves, but we're, we're sufficient in what he can give us and what he has given us. And so we can't go outside and get peace. Peace comes with a relationship with him. He's the only person that can give it. They, they can't give you joy. Money can't give you joy. Joy comes from, from, from him. There are some intangibles that you just can't get on your own. There's some intangibles that only come into your life as a result of being in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand that, that, our, that our contentment is Christ's sufficiency. The secret of contentment is to be satisfied with Jesus and Jesus alone. But a great deal of our discontentment comes from not being satisfied with Jesus. And so we don't live lives like God is gained. We live life like he's lost. So when he tells us to do something, we think that if we do that, we lose something. And the truth of the matter is, when we do what he tells us, we gain everything. Anything that you got to shirk Jesus to side for is a loss. You are operating, every time you choose something else outside of Jesus, you are operating at a loss. Your spiritual bank account is in the negative. <laughs> Satan, Bank of America is just racking up fees. Every time something else comes, they just let it come on through. Fee. Fee. How much Bank of America charge for the fees these days? Yeah, that much. That much. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. And so we have to get to the point where Jesus is all or he's nothing. He is everything. If I don't get them, I got Jesus. If I don't get another raise for the rest of my life, I got everything because I got Jesus. If I don't get a job promotion, I got Jesus. If I never complete that degree, I got Jesus. If they never call me back, I got Jesus. If they don't respond to my wicked text, I got Jesus. If they never like my post ever again for the rest of their life, I got Jesus. With Jesus, I have everything. Jesus is all or nothing. All or nothing. And so the way we fight an increasing desire for things is by praying for more desire for Christ. So your prayer should be, Lord, I know I desire this, but I pray, God, that, that there will be a thirst and a hunger for you that supersedes my hunger for that. God, I desire you more than I desire the money. I desire you more than I desire the person. I desire you more than I desire the position or the promotion. Lord, I, I want to be content in you. So God, change my desires to desire you more than I desire anything else. What does that look like? How, how did that flesh out? Well, the Apostle Paul will give us insight into this. Here's what he said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Here's what the Apostle said. He said this, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every single situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty one, with plenty or with little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul found the key to contentment. The key to contentment was to be satisfied with what Christ has given us. So that means if I got a million dollars or I'm in a negative by a thousand, I am content because I got Jesus. And so, why do we, why does he say that? Because verse 7 
gives us a clue. For we brought nothing into this world. Can't take nothing out of it. Nothing. I want to let the writer of Ecclesiastes tell us something. Give us some, give us some game. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. He's going to give us some game. Going to serve us well. I want you to remember this for the rest of the week. Write this down. It says this, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 15. Those who love money will never be satisfied. It'll never be enough. How meaningless to think wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Any parents want to give me an amen? You had kids and you had less money? So what good is wealth except perhaps to let it slip through your fingers? People who work hard, they sleep well, whether they eat a little or much. But the rich, to all of you wanna-be millionaires, get a seldom, rarely, almost never get a good night's sleep, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom gets nice. There's another serious problem I've seen on the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. I have a question for you. Many of us have been to many funerals in our lives. I need a raising of hands if you've ever seen a U-Haul backed up to a cemetery. <laughs> have you seen one? Because I haven't. There's a reason why. There's a reason why. So what he's saying is the more you have, the more people will help you spend it. The, the, the great theologian, the greatest theologian and poet of all time from the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, by the name of Christopher George Latore Wallace once said, more money, more problems. That's what he said. And so let me, let me throw this, this caveat in there for you. This is not to mean that you are to be derelict in your financial responsibilities. This is not to say you're not prudent and that you don't put money aside, and that you don't set a budget. Most of us can't give in church because we are horrible with the budget, and we look at God like he's the problem and not our budgeting. And so save money, put something aside, invest some money, have it wisely. Remember, that's, that's a good thing. I'm not speaking against it. But, but the content person says, although I have some financial goals, even if I don't reach them or they seem far off, I'm not going to lose no sleep over it. I might not know how these things are going to get paid for, but I'm going to bed. I'm going to sleep. Y'all stay up if you want. I ain't going to be worried about this nonsense. Jesus took care of me last season. Jesus is going to take care of me the next season. Jesus take care of me right now. Y'all do whatever y'all want. Y'all might not get y'all money. I don't know what to tell you. I give it when I get, I get some I get to you. Right now, I ain't got it, I'm going to bed. Stop calling me, eight o'clock, you can't call me no way. That's what you just need to tell them. I ain't got it, hey, Jesus is my key. Ask Jesus, he got everything. You coming to me, you need a relationship with Jesus. You ain't gonna get it from me, you gotta get it from him. Why, because cause, cause that stuff can't bring ultimate satisfaction, only God can do that. Contentment is knowing that I, if I am not satisfied with what I have, I will not be satisfied with what I want either. All contentment does is grows. You get one thing, you're going to want another one. It's just a cycle. So we have to get to a place 
Well, we're satisfied in Jesus. Everything's going to be okay. He doesn't want me to be anxious for nothing. We have to get to that place. Here's what he says in verse 8. If we have what? Food and clothing. We'll be content with these things. He's not saying that, that, that he's endorsing poverty, but, but it's a life that says if I never become rich, it doesn't mean that I was a failure or that my life was incomplete, but that my income did not change my standing before God. Whether you make 10000 a year or 100000 a year, you're still good with Jesus. He's not looking at how much money you have or what you've got accomplished. He's saying, look, if you got food and clothing, which I provide, you got shelter, which I provide, then you good. You might as well wake up in the morning and you might as well say, I'm living my best life. That's all you need to say when you wake up in the morning is that I'm living my best life. Y'all finish the rest because you're in the flesh. Finish the rest because you're in your flesh. Going back and forth with the devil. <laughs> Same word. <sighs> the dangers, though, of seeking wealth. Here's the method to Paul's madness. Verse 9, he says, But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into destruction, a ruin and destruction. The reason why he says that about many people desiring it, the dynamic in the church of Ephesus, hear this, the dynamic in the church of Ephesus was that it was a diverse church in the sense where there were poor people in Ephesus, but there were also rich members of the church. So now the idea of what the false teachers were preaching comes into greater life because they're telling them, if you do this, you can get what they have. And so what is that? It plays itself out in the life of the congregation where the people who are, have less are turning their nose up with the people who have more. And there's this silent competition that happens in the church. And so those who have accomplished kind of look side-eyed those who haven't. And those who haven't look side as if you don't have it, so it makes you holier and closer to Jesus. And that's not the case. And the danger of going after wealth is that a greed is not just a rich people's problem. Greed is actually more dangerous to people who are poor and don't have anything. Why? Because you feel like you need to accomplish or get that to make your life better. And so, so greed is not just a rich problem. Greed touches people from every, every financial background. It's not just for, for, for rich people. And so when you start doing stuff that is outside of God's will for your life, or busting moves that he told you to bust, or taking jobs he told you to take, he says, sit your behind right there at that, that $40,000 a year job and be content in it. Don't move yet. I ain't tell you to do that. You getting up, sending out resumes, doing all this nonsense, then got yourself into a job talking about God's favor, and six months in, you about to blow your brains out. You, you watching the Alexoria commercial on TV because you can't get no sleep at night. Now you got stomach problems and you got heartache and you got gingivitis and, and high blood pressure because you did something that was outside of God's will. And he told you, sit right there. You didn't know that if you would have just stayed faithful, showed up on time, still did your job to the best of your abilities, that I would have opened a door for you. But no, you ain't got time for that. You impatient. So you're going to get out of my will and go do something that I ain't told you to do discontentment set in and now you're paying the price for your discontentment there's wisdom in contentment here's what he says for the love of money in verse 10 and i'm almost done 
For the love of money, you know your grandmama said money is the root of all evil. Grandma was wrong. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is idea, this love of money is the idea of accumulating money, just accumulating it, storing it, being stingy, being greedy, just storing it so you can multiply it and you can just continue to build and have money and have money for your own benefit and for your own good. And that's a problem because you can't love God and money. You can't love both. They are incompatible. They're incompatible. Either you love God and use money or you love money and use God to get it. Let me say it again for the people in the back that can't hear me. Either you love God and use money or you love money and use God to get it. That's where you, you're either one or the other. And so when it says the root is a strong word and drives home the point that greed has dangerous results because it just doesn't stop at money. When you don't get what you need, you go off and it causes you to do other sins and do other stuff that you wouldn't typically do before. Think about this. God knows that if he gave you certain stuff, it would tear your life apart. You'll stop coming to church. You in vacation out there in the middle of Tahiti somewhere. You doing things that you ain't never done before because it's a perpetuating cycle. But maybe God is saying, I need to get you to a place where you're a little bit more disciplined, where your perspective is right and you don't think self first, but you think kingdom first. Maybe that needs to be your mindset. But until then, I got to withhold from you because I love you enough to know that if I give you some, it might kill you and destroy your life. And I'd rather you be intact and be broke than be rich and fall apart. And so what happened was, here's the danger. Oh, let me read this to you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Why would he say that? Because people in the church that were listening to this nonsense by the false teachers, when they didn't get it, they were leaving the faith. And that's the danger of the name it and claim it, speak it, declare it, decree it. That's the, that's the danger in that. The danger in it is, is after you get done decreeing and declaring, after you get done trying to speak it into existence, and it does not happen to you, you don't blame the preacher that sold you the bill of goods, you blame God. So now what was the issue here has become your issue with God and you mad and offended at God because you didn't get what he didn't promise you. God's like, I ain't have nothing to do with that. I didn't tell you that, but you, you, you didn't check my word. You, you weren't in touch with the Holy Spirit and your mind got to a point where you start believing the nonsense and it took you somewhere else. And now you want to walk out of the church and leave the covenant, uh, a community of believers because you didn't get what I didn't promise you. That's crazy. And so God's like, I need to change your mindset first. I need you to not, not, not be focused on, on accumulating wealth and money. I need you to be content in me first, not saying you won't get it eventually, but I come first, not your own personal financial agenda. Here's the point. Jesus is the true treasure of our souls. Jesus is the true treasure of our souls. And what the human heart really craves is not money, but God. Amen. You think you want a man. No, you want Jesus. 
You think you want that person. No, you want God. That's what you really want. That's what the longing in your soul is crying out for. It's not crying out for what you think it's crying out for. You have a God-sized hole in your heart that can only be filled by Jesus. And we have a nerve. We don't think kingdom first when it comes to things like finances, right? It's like, I get my money and I'm going to do with what I want with my money. That's twisted thinking. The kingdom of God comes first. Then you leave money for the next generation and your own financial or personal well-being. Here's how sick and twisted we are. We'll come to church, not pay our tithe and offering. And then go home at night and pray God to bless us financially. Wow. How crazy. God, please just help me pay them bills. And God's like, but you just was, you was just in church. You didn't give nothing. You expect me to bless you in an area of your disobedience. I don't work like that. You want me to, I set a system in place in my economy where you, you give to me not because I need your money, but because I just need to see how much you love me. It's just an indication of how much you trust me. Your money is an indicator of the, of the posture of your heart. If you look at your checkbook, your checkbook will tell you where your heart is. It'll reveal and expose everything that's in your heart. And some of us get in situations and predicaments and we'll withhold from God in order to do something that God ain't told us to do. Well, I got to do this. I got to take care of this. And God is like, but you going to come to me tonight? And you're going to say, God, bless my finances. God, I need a promotion. God, I need more money. And God is like, but you ain't, you're not being generous with the little that you do have. That is backward and sick, twisted thinking. But the good news is that Jesus died so that you don't have to worry about your finances. Jesus died on the cross to get rid of that anxiety you got about your situation. Jesus died on the cross for you staying up late at night. Jesus died so that you can go to bed at night knowing that he is your provider and that he takes care of all of your needs. That the word of God says that he will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. That God will take care of everything. That Jesus is all that you need. But until Jesus becomes the treasure of your soul, everything else will fail you and fall short. Can I suggest to you that what you want is not more of that, but you want more of God. And so we end up hoarding, and what we're communicating to God is that deep down, we do not believe that the giver will continue to give. We hoard stuff. Mm, I'm, giving you my money. I'm not giving my money. I got I to gotta do stuff with it. And we're communicating to God that we don't believe that the giver will continue to give. But when has it ever been God's nature to withhold from his people? Never. So, whether it be finances, career, relationship, whatever it is your endeavors are, that you have to get to a point where you're so settled in your heart and your spirit that Jesus is all or he's nothing. That's a real challenge for a self-centered generation that we live in, where everybody tells us everything's about us. But can I tell you this? There's blessing, there's grace, 
there's favor, there's God's protection, there's all of these wonderful benefits and blessings. When we get satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone, Jesus, all or nothing. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.